Hey everybody. So this is the lecture on agriculture. And last week or last time we had started talking about horticulture. That's actually what we were talking about before we went out for spring break. And you know, horticulturalists grow their food. Um, but there's a big difference between being a horticulturalist and this category that we're talking about this week, which is agriculturalist. The main difference between the two is that agriculturalists put aside extra at the end of every year. And we call that extra that people put aside surplus. So what that means is that from year to year, if you're able to amass some surplus, you're also able to invest that back into the way that you're doing your farming. And one of the things that we find with agriculturalists is that they develop technologies in order to increase their yield. So this means that they're getting more and more out of the soil every year. One of the reasons that they're able to do this is because of those technologies. We talk about three different technologies that separate agriculturalists from the people that don't have those technologies that we call horticulturalists. The first is irrigation. If you're able to irrigate, you're able to have a longer growing season and you're also able to, to grow different kinds of crops. Probably the most famous irrigation system was the one that was worked out by the Egyptians who lived in the Nile River Valley. And what they were able to do was dig trenches or canals that allowed them to water their fields pretty far from the Nile River. They relied on the annual floods of the river to fill up those canals and then they were able to control the water that got to the to the wheat fields. And, you know, over the course of 4,000 years, which is how long the Egyptians um, had an empire, they were able to get very wealthy. They were agriculturalists. Another technology, so the second one that we associate with agriculturalists is the idea of traction. So traction is that same word that when you think of a tractor, it's a kind of a tool that allows you to dig down into the soil profile and churn up the soil so that you're getting um, soil that has more nutrients in it and that's going to be better to plant your crops in. Horticultural people don't do that. They Remember they rely on the slash and burn? That's how they get their soil to be more fertile. But agriculturalists develop methods of traction. And at first traction, of course, is just like a, you know, like a shovel, a hoe that you can use to turn soil over. But gradually people develop things like um, plows that you can attach to livestock or that you can drive around on tractors. 
And then the final technology that agriculturalists develop is fertilization. So fertilizers come from a whole variety of places. Sometimes they're organic. They can come from plant materials or they can come from animal byproducts, especially manure. Fertilizers can also be made of, of petrochemicals. Um, these are ways that farmers improve the fertility of the soil. And by doing that, they can grow more plants, they can have higher yields, and they can have more surplus. So more surplus means more wealth and more investment for the following year. So you can buy more seeds or you can buy better technologies so that you can grow more food and grow more food and grow more food. So you see a real difference here from the place where we started when we started talking about hunter-gatherers who really were just wandering around collecting food as they found it. And we said, you know, hunter-gatherers, foragers are incredibly skilled. They have a really deep knowledge of the environment that they live in and they're able to sustain themselves, um, especially because they move around. They keep their fertility rates quite low, so they have relatively fewer people per group. But they don't grow any of their own food, so they don't have a regular reliable surplus. When we start talking about agriculturalists, these are folks who have developed technologies that guarantee them a reliable surplus. But there's a trade-off. One of the pieces of the trade-off is that they become sedentary. That means that they stay in one place, right? They don't move around because farmers have to stay put once they put those seeds in the ground. Another thing that we find among agriculturalists is that they tend to favor high rates of fertility. So they have large families, there's lots of people in an agricultural society. We already talked about this a little when we talked about kinship. Most of those documentaries that we watched at that time were from parts of the world where people relied on horticulture or agriculture. They relied on growing food and growing food is really labor intensive and it requires you to stay put. So when we talk about the shift to an agricultural lifestyle, we're going back in time to about 10,000 years ago. Really, it's, prob it's probable that the agricultural revolution started 14,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago. Uh, it's hard really to know exactly who was the first agricultural society, uh, but it happened in the area that we think of today as the Middle East. And even more specifically, we, we tend to think about the agricultural revolution happening between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in something called the Fertile Crescent. 
This transition to an agricultural lifestyle is sometimes called the Neolithic Revolution. Neolithic means the New Stone Age. So what archaeologists mean when they name something a New Stone Age is because people are moving into agriculture, they are developing new technologies. Um, later, we're going to see um, the use of the Bronze Age or the use of the Iron Age to talk about um, developments within the agricultural societies. Typically, what we talk about um, when we're when we're looking at these fertile crescent people are um, a group uh, that we don't have the actual name for. Archaeologists call them the Natufians. N-A-T-U-F-I-A-N. You want to look it up? Um, and they they started growing wheat and barley. Uh, it seems like they experimented quite a lot with seed selection and seed storage. And so it took a learning curve to develop uh, technique so that they were able to start getting higher yields. Um, it probably took several hundred or even a thousand years for this kind of learning curve to get established. But eventually, if we look to um, southern Turkey, there is an archaeological site called Shatoleuk. Um, it's spelled C-A-T-A-L-H-O-Y-U-K. And one of the things that we find at Shatoleuk is that it's probable that about 8,000 people lived in one settlement. So now stop and think about that. So far in this class, we've talked about a number of different subsistence strategies, and we've never talked about a group that had more than 1,000 people. Now we have about 8,000 people living close together in one space. Um, when archeologists excavate at Chateauleuk, they find a lot of evidence of hunting, but they also find evidence of people uh, probably raising cattle. And then of course, there's evidence that they were growing food so here we have kind of a hybrid, right? There's, they're using all different types of subsistence strategies. Um, it's not incidental that they lived close to what essentially was a mine where they were getting uh, this high quality obsidian. Obsidian's sometimes called volcanic glass. So it, it's, a, it's a metamorphic rock and it, uh, when you, when you work it, if you know what you're doing, you can get it to hold these really sharp edges. So it makes a really good blade. So archeologists speculate that the folks there were not only growing food and hunting and raising cattle, but they were also trading. So at this point, it's probably good to turn our attention to um, what we consider to be the main features that we can find in agricultural societies. 
archaeologists, depending on what book you read, can talk about eight or nine, or sometimes even they, they break these up into 10 different features. I'm going to talk about eight features um, that we find in agricultural societies. The first I've already mentioned is that we see evidence of surplus, which means that we'll see evidence of things like granaries or storage houses. You can see those in the archaeological record, but you can also see evidence of differential amounts of wealth. So some people within agricultural societies are going to be more successful than other people. And one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to amass wealth and pass it down from one generation to the next. So over time, what we see is a concentration of wealth among a certain sector of the society. Um, that brings us to the second feature that we tend to find in agricultural societies, which is the presence of social stratification. Social stratification is often closely associated with another many-syllabled expression, uh, occupational specialization. So we find social stratification coexisting with occupational specialization. And all of that is just to say that people do different kinds of work. People get different kinds of training in order to pursue different kinds of professions. So some people are going to get trained to be scribes or writers or religious practitioners. Some people are going to get training to be bureaucrats or judges or lawyers, not lawyers exactly, but you know, advocates that would be present in a judicial system. Some people are going to get training to be teachers or some people are going to get training to be craftspeople or merchants. It's a whole wide range of professions that start to open up for people in agricultural societies. Because of surplus, it's not necessary for every single person to be out in the fields every single day, the way we find in horticultural societies. But rather, people can start to specialize and you know as well as I do that different kinds of professions are going to be compensated differently. So some people are going to have more wealth than other people. And what happens there is we see this vertical structuring that we call stratification. So one of the ways we think about status, remember earlier in the class we talked about achieved status versus ascribed status? And we said that achieved status comes from something that you do personally, like you become a really good hunter or you have a lot of um, very healthy children. These would be things that you were able to do that other people admired. When we, when we look at societies that have this kind of achieved status, we typically think of those as horizontal. And that is to say that people who have the same status are, are ranked equal to one another. But in an agricultural society that's starting to have social stratification, 
we see that some people have a higher rank than other people. So people have power over those below them, some professions, some, how about this, family lineages that have been successful over the course of several generations are going to start to pull ahead of other families. And so we see the internal differentiation of status and the movement from what we formerly had achieved status to a new feature called ascribed status where the status that you have is the status that you're born with because of your lineage, because of the profession of your family, because of the reputation of your parents. The third feature that we find in agricultural societies is a centralized political authority. So do you remember before when we were talking about pastoralism and we were looking at those big men there was that guy Jafar in our video from Iran. And there was also that guy um, in the Samoa reading who was the leader. They are guys who got to be leaders because of their personal qualities. But when we start talking about agricultural societies, we start to see that there is a centralized political authority. That is to say that there is an office, like a like a pharaoh or like a king or like an emperor. There's a, there's a role that's already designated for a person. And the person who gets that doesn't always get it through their own achievement, although sometimes they do, but sometimes they're born into that role. They have it ascribed to them. The centralized political authority is also important because now you have people who are able to compel others to do their will. So you have a leader and it's very common in agricultural societies for that leader to also be part of a the theocratic um, system of governance. If I say something is theocratic, that means that it has a rule by a religion. It has like a, like a almost spiritual aspect to it. So that is to say that your your leader isn't always just a political leader, but he could also be a religious leader, maybe even semi-divine. That was certainly the case in Egypt. And when you read this stuff about the Aztec, you're gonna see that for the Aztec leadership, um, it's, it's impossible to separate out the political leader from the religious leader from the economic leader because they're all one in the same person. The fourth feature that we associate with agricultural societies is increasing population density. So like we just said about Stolayuk having up to 80,000 people, you're gonna have lots and lots of people living in very close proximity to one another. And all those people are gonna be carrying out different kinds of jobs doing different kinds of things. So you see the emergence of cities. With the emergence of cities, you also have to think about the fact that you would need some kind of sanitation system. So um, sanitation systems, when we look at the oh, pre-industrial world and even sometimes the industrial world don't always work that well. And so if a sanitation system isn't working well, you'd have high rates of disease, you'd have people getting sick. 
So it's really in the city's best interest to figure out some way to manage having so many people, you know, removing refuse. In some cases we see um, running water. In some cases we see um, efforts to do kind of like plumbing. Uh, so the Romans were big on this. Um, they had these aqueducts and all kinds of things that they brought into their colonies. The, which brings me actually to the fifth topic or feature of agricultural states, and that is we, we tend to find what's called monumental architecture. So monumental architecture is just a fancy way of saying big public buildings. I mean, if you think about the pyramids in Egypt, that's the best example I can give you of monumental architecture. It's a really big structure that took a lot of people a lot of time to build. And not just a lot of people and a lot of time, but also a lot of skill and a lot of planning. So there's a lot of moving parts to building a pyramid. You've got to get the stone. How do you move the stone? How do you pay the people who are moving the stone? How do you figure out how to pile the stones on top of each other? How do you how do you organize a workforce that's that big? It's a huge undertaking. Monumental architecture is also sometimes more subtle. Like if you think about Stonehenge in England, monumental architecture can also be something like the pyramids in Central America. Um, and definitely when you watch the video about the Aztec, you're going to learn everything you never even knew you wanted to know about um, about monumental architecture in uh, ancient Mexico. Another thing that we find with agricultural states or agricultural societies is that they tend to start the process of empire building. They want more land and territory to increase the kind of surpluses that they're able to bring in. So we frequently associate agricultural societies with standing arm armies. I mentioned before when we were talking about pastoralists, that pastoralists and agriculturalists do not get along. Pastoralists, remember, they're the ones with all the livestock who are moving around, are, are doing exactly that. They're moving around. And agriculturalists are staying put and they're growing food and they're amassing wealth. And so they have such different strategies for making a living that they often come head to head. So agricultural societies need to develop first ways to defend themselves. And then gradually, many of them also develop ways to increase the size of their empire. That really leads us into the seventh feature of agricultural societies, which has to do with the, the development of currency, of markets, and of trade. So now you have different agricultural centers rising up um, 
archaeologists point to this happening like you had ancient Egypt, you had Kush, you had Harappa, you had um, all of these different um, societies existing within fairly close proximity to one another. And they have luxury goods or they have commodities that the other group wants. And so trade starts to spring up. But of course, if you go to some other place and you've got your own currency, how do you know that you're going to be able to set, spend that in another society's market? So standardized currencies start to rise up. The final piece that we typically associate with agricultural societies is that they develop writing. So writing emerges first as accounting, as bookkeeping. So if you look to Mesopotamia, which is, you know, that that first agricultural center that emerges in the Fertile Crescent, the folks there developed a method of writing called cuneiform, spelled C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M. What they did was they took these wet slabs of clay and they wrote into them different systems of accounting. They also wrote stuff like recipes. For example, there's a recipe for beer that exists that's almost 4,000 years old. You can still make it today. I don't know if it tastes that great. I haven't had it. But the system of writing is used to codify the society. It's also used to start doing things like write down law. So again, in Mesopotamia, we have a king, a leader, whose name is Hammurabi. And you might have heard of Hammurabi's code. Hammurabi was the leader of a society and he made this stele. He didn't do it himself, but he had people do it for him. A stele is like a statue um, or a plinth. It's like a huge stone edifice that he erected right in the center of his royal plaza and then he wrote on it in cuneiform again he didn't do it somebody did it for him the law of the land and Hammurabi said if you come into Hammurabi's lands you are subject to the rule of law as decided by Hammurabi you've probably heard that eye for an eye tooth for a tooth line Hammurabi's the guy <laughs> who wrote that down. He was the ultimate arbiter of justice and he was the centralized political authority. He was at the top of that stratified structure. And so he was the one in, at the top of the army. He was the one with the most wealth. So all of these features that we've just been talking about that are common to agricultural societies are pieces that you can look for when you start watching that documentary about the Aztec. Just to summarize, there are eight features of agricultural societies that we typically look for. One is surplus, 
two is occupational specialization combined with social stratification, so internal differentiation of status. Third is the emergence of a centralized political authority, often as a theocratic leader. Fourth is increasing population density and all the features that go with that, like sanitation, um, sometimes a standing police force. Fifth is monumental architecture. Sixth is a standing army and empire building. Seventh is trade, markets, and currency. And then finally, we look for the emergence of writing. So there's lots of videos out there on origins of agriculture. If you want to see more, I would recommend the John Green Crash Course, just YouTube Crash Course Agricultural Revolution or look for the Neolithic Revolution.